Go for it. Good afternoon and welcome to the Green Coast Day. Our coast, our future and the drought. This event is organized by the Garrison Honor Center and the Coast Report. My name is Irene Nessa and I teach geography here at Orange Coast College. So thank you for joining my cultural geography class today as we discuss the California drought and impacts on agriculture. So let me turn things over to Dr. Shermack, Professor of Journalism and Advisor to the Coast Report. Thank you, Professor Anessa. Good afternoon, everyone. Californians are well aware of the water issues that face our state. Telling a Californian that they're in a drought is like telling a fish they're in water. However, the situation is particularly newsworthy today as recent reports and studies have illustrated just how dire the situation is. A recent study from UCLA found that California is in the midst of the driest 20 year period since 800 AD when Vikings sailed the seas and Mayans built temples. Last summer produced the worst single season drought on record. As we move towards this summer, and it certainly feels like summer today, conditions are only expected to, expected to worsen after a record dry winter. To make matters worse, Californians have not curtailed water use, and many are calling for government-imposed water restrictions. Today, we will have a conversation led by student reporters to address this issue and explore ways that we can make a difference. We are honored to be joined today by an esteemed panel of experts. Please welcome along with me, who you just met, uh, OCC Geography Professor Irene uh, Nessa, OCC Computing Co Center Coordinator, Green Coast Day Coordinator, and Environmental Geographer, John Fawcett, OCC Horticulture Professor, Joe Stead, and OCC Political Science Professor, Jason Ball. Each panelist will be asked some questions by journalists from Coast Report before we have a Q&A session for the last portion of the hour. To the audience, if you have a question, please enter it in the Q&A area on Zoom. And our moderators will try to relay as many questions as possible during that Q&A session. If you wish to engage on social media, please use the hashtag, hashtag drought, drought, town hall, drought town hall in your tweets and posts. To get us started, I'd like to welcome Coast Report's views editor, Timothy Hessen. Timothy, take it away. Thank you, Dr. Shermack. I'd like to welcome OCC Geography Professor Irene Nessa. To start this off, we're going to go with the simple but important question. Do they just get this ball rolling here? Why should we be concerned about the drought? That's a really good question because doesn't it seem like we're in a drought all the time? So currently, California is the driest that it has been in 1,200 years. And when we have these mega droughts, they don't just last for 10 years, they last for almost 200 years. And so this is a long period of drought that we can expect. And while this can be part of a normal cycle, climate change is certainly a contributing factor. However, this drought is also different because it is being exacerbated by historical water policy and politics for California's agricultural industry. So here's some fun facts about California agriculture and water. Only 10% of California's water is used by urban areas. The majority of the state's water is used by irrigated agriculture and environmental uses, such as maintaining wetlands and rivers. 
California has the greatest agricultural output of any state. Number two is Iowa, and they're not even close to our agricultural output. California produces 90% of the fruits and nuts in the United States. We are the world's largest almond producer. We are the world's fifth largest food producer. And so the drought is going to have a major impact on food production, groundwater resources, and the state's economy. Thank you. And you know, you mentioned almonds in relation to the water in California. Over 80% of the world's almonds are grown in California. What's the relationship between that and the water problems that we have in this state? That's another really good question because we see almond milk, we see so many almond products in the grocery store. So almond production and water use is really controversial here in California. And so when you're looking into this, you really have to be careful about bias. So is the data from the agricultural industry? Is it coming from um, the state and so forth? So I found this really interesting article where the researchers had calculated something called the water footprint. Now we're probably more familiar with the term carbon footprint, but the water footprint identifies how much water is used in crop production. So almonds have the highest water footprint of California's crop productions at three gallons per almond. They use more water than grapes, citrus, and strawberries. And the reason that traditional crops like grapes and citrus are being replaced by almond orchards is the high economic value of those almonds. So while there is a high water use, there's also a really high profit margin for those farmers, which makes almonds economically desirable. But another factor is the high nutritional value in almonds compared to other crops, and that is increasing consumer demand. So as a result of the drought, there's less surface water from rain or snowmelt to provide the high amount of irrigation necessary to produce those almonds. So almond orchards currently are being irrigated through the use of groundwater. Groundwater is unregulated by the state of California and has become the main source of irrigation for these crops. So this is leading to both salinization of the soil, which is the buildup of salt as a result of those high evaporation rates, but also the collapse of land as the aquifer is emptied and we have these subterranean voids that can no longer hold up the land above it. So in some parts of the Central Valley, there has been a 30 foot collapse. That's like a three story building. And this is causing billions of dollars in damage in infrastructure, rail lines, irrigation canals and roads. And thank you for that. And thank you for the very deep and introspective answer. Um, Professor Nessa, we look forward to you participating in the Q&A session. Dr. Shermack, back to you. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Professor Nessa. Thank you so much, Timothy, for those great questions. Um, next, I would like to introduce Coast Report's sports editor, Chris Babona. Chris, over to you. Thanks, Dr. Shermack. And we'd like to welcome John Fawcett, environmental geographer, Green Coast Day coordinator, and computing center coordinator. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. 
So we've heard some grim outlooks about the drought this year. What's your take on the, the prospects of the drought worsening? Well, to start with, I think um, one of the really long-term problems in California is we've not taken this seriously. Uh, we've not considered uh, water shortages. Uh, we've not considered how water is used in agriculture. Um, we have the impression that you just turn on the tap and water will flow. And my concern at this point is we really need to get serious about this. You know, we need to seriously conserve our water resources. Um, we need to think about how we're using water and start making choices that um, preserve the water supply for the best use that's available. And in many cases, change lifestyle, change uh, habits uh, so that we can in fact you know, get through a drought without more serious consequences. Sure. Um, I think also when we think about drought, we have a tendency to think in a very narrow way, like, well, there's just not enough water. But the truth is there's plenty of water. And the reason that we run short of water is generally the way that we're not managing water resources um, in a more efficient way. Um, also, when we think about drought, we don't often think about some of the secondary conditions that come along with it. Um, one that's very important is that when we are missing a lot of moisture in the form of rainfall or snowfall or you know other precipitation, the ground tends to dry out. This has a very negative effect on our trees throughout the state, through grasslands, through you know everything that grows on the land is affected when there's not as much moisture in the atmosphere because that turns out to soon be there's not enough moisture in the ground. Now that's an important consideration because when you dry out all of the plants and brush and grass, um, you create an environment where we can have much more severe wild, wildfires. And then at the same time, we don't have an adequate supply of water to put out the wildfires. Um, also, um, in recent history, in the last 100 years or so, we have often solved problems by just moving water from one place to another. You know, we've built some extremely long delivery systems that run all the way from the northern part of the state, literally all the way to San Diego. Um, so we're bringing water from many sources that are quite far away. And this brings in another thing that we don't think about, which is the energy that it takes to move the water. Um, and even another effect on top of that, which is when we have a lesser supply of water, pretty soon we don't have enough water to sustain the hydroelectric plants that depend on a large supply of water behind a dam to run the turbines to generate the electricity. And there's one thing I'm sure very few people know, and that is that 
the single largest point source of electrical use in the state of California are the pumps that pump the water from the California aqueduct uh, over the grapevine and finally down into Southern California and almost beyond to the Northern parts of San Diego County. So am I concerned about the drought? Yes, for an awful lot of reasons. And Mr. Fawcett, could you expand on the idea of where California actually does get its water from? Um, sure, and let me uh, actually bring up a couple images because I want to kind of introduce this before I actually talk about the, the plumbing as it's sometimes referred to. So hold on while I share my screen. I hope everybody can see that. Good. So I'm, I'm showing a picture to start off with of uh, Lake Mead. And uh, you can see these uh, kind of light colored areas that uh, surround the dam here, uh, Hoover Dam. And these uh, column things are actually the intakes for the water that's going towards the bottom of the dam where the hydroelectrical plant is located. Not only do we get a lot of water from the Colorado River, we also get a lot of electricity from Hoover Dam. Um, let me see if I can go to the next slide. Hmm. Well, so much for that. Hold on one moment. Um, this next image is Lake Powell, uh, another large uh, reservoir associated with the Colorado River. It's a little bit further upstream, but I wanted to make a point that we're not just missing water in a single reservoir. Um, we're missing a water, uh, we're missing water in an entire river basin. So the Colorado River um, flows through eight different states and um, eventually flows into Mexico and out into the Gulf of California. But this entire watershed is affected by the drought. It affects agriculture in all eight of these states. It affects hydroelectrical power. It affects municipal water supply. Las Vegas uh, is almost at the point where they can no longer draw water from Lake Mead. They in fact had to build a third uh, input pipe to take water out of the lake at essentially the very bottom of the lake. And the other Intakes uh, are very near to the level of the lake where pretty soon they won't be able to draw water out. Even though the water is there, they won't be able to get to it. Um, so let me go on um, and bring up my next image.
different tax plans. And this this is a, a, a graphic showing some of our long distance uh, water transmission um, facilities in California. Um, I want to kind of start at the very uh, top of this graphic, uh, the northernmost part of California. Uh, we have a number of um, very productive rivers that produce a tremendous amount of water, uh, most of it coming from the uh, runoff of the snowpack in the Sierra Nevadas, but principally um, starting at Lake Shasta, um, the Sacramento River, the Feather River, uh, quite a few other rivers. Um, bring all of that water into the channel, which is the Sacramento River as it approaches the middle of the state and flows into the, uh, the Delta. It's actually the San Francisco Bay Delta. And that becomes a very important storage resource for water coming from Northern California. Um, we have a very uh, large number of dams uh, and reservoirs uh, at this point in time, the reservoirs are getting to the lowest point that uh, has generally been measured. Um, I think um, maybe 25 to 30% of the capacity of the reservoir. Um, as we move down the state, um, we get into the uh, California aqueduct which um, starts just a little bit below the San Francisco area and brings water all the way to the, uh, the base of the, the grapevine, as I mentioned a, a bit ago. And then it's pumped up over the uh, mountains and that brings it down into the uh, Southern California area. Um, there's another major water source, the Colorado River Aqueduct, that brings uh, a portion of the water from the Colorado River into California. Um, another reason why I'm worried about the drought, there's an agreement between the eight states and Mexico that share the water from the Colorado River. And this agreement called the Colorado River Compact was put in place many years ago, and it defined a certain allocation that each of the states could take out of the Colorado River and it, it left over a, a fairly substantial portion for Mexico and that is uh, codified in an international treaty. We're obliged to leave water enough in the Colorado to uh, provide that supply to Mexico. Well, for the last few years and especially looking forward to this year and beyond, there's not enough water to meet all of those allocations. Uh, California has traditionally been overdrawing its allocation because there was a little bit more water and we're the biggest water consumer. Um, I shouldn't uh, fail to mention the, uh, the Los Angeles aqueduct, which was uh, 
one of the first water systems that brought water to the Los Angeles area. Uh, William Mulholland um, scouted this out on the eastern side of the Sierras and found uh, that this was a very favorable way to bring water to Southern California because of the geography. It's mostly downhill from where we start, uh, again, kind of in the middle of the state, but on the other side of the Sierras. And for the most part, it, the water will flow uh, by gravity to the Los Angeles area. Um, so I think I'll, I'll kind of stop there in terms of the, uh, the plumbing systems. Um, did you have another question? Oh, I think that, that insight will do just fine. Thank you so much. Mr. Fawcett, we'll turn it over to Dr. Shermack. All right, great. Thank you so much, uh, Chris and John. Uh, before our next guest, I do want to remind uh, participants that if you want to enter a question in the Q&A, feel free to do so. Uh, we will have a Q&A at the uh, end of the, uh, near the end of the hour, uh, and then we'll introduce questions to the panelists then provided by you, the audience, as well as some that were provided prior to the event today. I would now like to introduce Coast Reports Arts and Culture Editor, Tasman McGill. Taz, please take it away. Thank you, Dr. Shermack. So the next speaker we have is OCC's Horticulture Professor, Joe Stead. Welcome. So the first question I have for you is, there, are, there have been discussions regarding um, mandating water cutbacks and landscaping and lawn care could be heavily impacted from that. How can California change its landscaping to use less water? Well, <clears throat> thank you for having me. Uh, one, of the, one of the major things, and Irene touched on it and John touched on it a little bit, is the use of water um, in California and all over the United States. And I don't know, uh, there's a lot of people that don't really know this, that the number one irrigated crop in the United States is grass and not the type you smoke. It's the type that people use for their landscapes. So if you think about that, that's huge. That's an amazing amount of water. We live in a desert here. Now there's some parts of the country that, that you know, that's not really a bit, uh, that much of a problem, but here it's, it's a huge issue. And you know, people are so into their lawns and their landscapes that they're saying, oh no, I gotta have this, gotta have a really beautiful lawn. So, so that's, that's one of the biggest things that I can think of. Yes, there is going to be uh, mandates coming from the state. There are already some that are already out now, but let me read a little thing that put together. Uh, we need permanent change to California's urban landscape and it should be embraced rather than feared. California continues to cycle through wet and dry seasons but during the wet years, the public doesn't receive any signals from their water agencies to plan for the years when we have less water available. There are rebates available through water agencies that can help people reduce their, <clears throat> replace their landscapes and replace it by replacing irrigation controllers with smart controllers. These are great opportunities for the landscape and nursery industry to reinvent themselves and prepare for a future with less water. And a lot of times they say, oh no, it's really gonna impact the, you know, the industry, but this will create new types of jobs, uh, water auditing, you know, different types of, of landscaping, um, such as drought tolerant uh, plants. 
Um, but, and this is, this is uh, my opinion along with a lot of other people. The real problem is with the water agencies. I won't mention any particular ones, but um, they really have no incentive for people to reduce their water consumption permanently because less water means less revenue for the agency, which in turn causes agencies to raise water rates to cover their costs and then blame conservation on increasing rates. The electric utilities went through significant rate design changes years ago. They are fully compensated for the cost to operate and maintain the system. And then they have a volumetric system based on how much is used. The same could be done for water utilities where their cost to operate and maintain the system is fully compensated. And then the customer pays a volumetric charge. But the water agencies are adamantly that they adamant they will never let this happen. So that, that's a that's a huge a huge thing. You know, you, you really don't hear a lot about the drought until there is water shortages. We have we had rain what a week ago, and you know that was great. But now a week later, it's 99 degrees here. So um, anyway. Um, there's there's another thing that I can that I can touch on in you know here on on OCC's campus there is a lot of turf and even in our our own horticulture department we had a discussion the other day and we're talking about reducing another area in in our department um, because it's it's hardly being used the uh, a huge crime uh, when I when I walk around campus is I see that the only person or probably a, a small percentage of people that are using the turf is the guy that mows it every week. And, and that makes no sense. Those of us are, who are old enough to realize that skin cancer um, is a major uh, health concern and that we want to stay out of the sun. Now, a lot of these areas, oh no, we need big turf areas so people can go lay on the grass. No. We need more trees and shade areas and benches so that students can congregate on those areas. We don't want to encourage students to go lay on the lawns where someone has probably spilled gas every time they filled up their mower or they've dumped a lot of pesticides and fertilizers on these lawns. Uh, or some people are saying, oh no, I need a place for my dog to go use you know, the turf areas. It, it makes no sense. And I, I fully um, encourage who, who's ever listening, possibly an administration here, that we, we move towards uh, a, less, a less turf on campus. Uh, because that, that one fact about if we're, if we're using you know, most of the water in the United States on turf, that makes no sense at all. And, and if I may add, you know, that the, uh, I teach a class on cactus and succulents. And I've been into that for the last 30 years. And what I found is some of the landscapes that we've created here on campus and, and around the world um, are, are magnificent. They're beautiful. They, they use very little water. When's the last time someone walked by a really green lawn area and said, oh my gosh, that is amazing. Look how beautiful that is. Look at the diversity. You know, it's not, it's not. But if you walk by the chemistry garden, which 
the horticulture garden, uh, the horticulture department and students put together, there's a diversity of plants. There's a lot of uh, insects, uh, birds and things that hang out in those areas. So, so those are things that we really need. We do live in a desert. And so we need to, to really embrace uh, different types of landscapes. Awesome, thank you. So speaking of um, the gardens that OCC has, we do have a beautiful succulent garden. Can you tell us more about the OCC succulent garden as well as its future and its relation to the drought? Yes, um, so that garden was uh, put in or installed by students and staff in 2011. And just a few years ago, I was told that that particular garden was going to have to be moved or dismantled because the chemistry building is, is uh, they're gonna build a new chemistry garden or building on campus. So that building has to come down. So I got together with uh, maintenance and operations director and, and talked to with Rich Pagel and some other people on campus, Mike Ricks, um, landscape supervisor here on campus. And we came up with a plan and I said, why don't we move the chemistry garden over? So Chauncey Bay's on campus uh, helped. We put some uh, photographs together and transposed them onto pictures of the um, planetarium. And so we said, let's move that garden over to the planetarium. So it's, it's going to be a huge undertaking. It's gonna take, a, it's gonna take some months to do, but we've already started. Uh, we've already got approval for it. And so that garden will not uh, just be torn apart. It's going to be moved over to, um, to the new planetarium area. And hopefully it'll be there for the next 20 or 30 years. And the, and the one thing that I look forward to is I use that garden for my uh, succulent class and to show the students how uh, we can landscape different areas. The students are gonna be involved in, in moving the, that plant material over. And, and then hopefully we can use that area to put some signage up that will say, the, you know, check out this garden. It's only watered, you know, so much uh, a year. And, and right now the chemistry garden in the winter is not watered at all. I, I don't water that. It just gets uh, regular rains and it's thrived. And in the summer I water it maybe once a month and that's it. So if you think about uh, one thing in horticulture, if you think about whenever you turn on your hose and you're watering your plants, um, most households have uh, about 60 PSI um, per square inch water coming out of their hose. If you put your timer on your phone, uh, one minute equals five gallons. So if you're out watering your yard next time, or if you turn your sprinklers on, uh, that's one way to kind of test things. So when I'm out watering different areas, I put my timer on and I can tell how many gallons I used when watering. And you'd be amazed how much water you do use um, on regular perennials or turf areas but succulents use very little water at all, so. Well, thank you so much, Professor Stead, for your insights. Uh, Dr. Shermack, back to you. Excellent, thank you so much, Taz. And I'm gonna turn it back over now to uh, Chris. Chris, take it away. Thank you, Dr. S. Our next speaker is OCC political science professor, Jason Ball. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right, how are you? Great, so to no one's surprise, the drought has become a political issue. Um, 
What are some of the powerful interest groups at play here with water allocation? So I want to kind of take a step back um, because I'd like to first talk about the potentially most powerful interest group involved in water, which is everyone. Um, and I'm going to take a step back even further into abstraction and, and just sort of premise this on the reality that one of the one of the basic requirements for human civilization is irrigation and settled agriculture. Our ability to live in one place for any significant length of time, to have cities and advanced technology is because we have dependable water supplies. That's the difference between a majority of people spending most of their time procuring food on one hand, or on the other hand, having a small portion of the population do that so we can have things like Orange Coast College. And underlying this is the fact that every human being requires constant access to water to live. So even before talking about the nuances of interest groups and policies, this is the most basic and fundamental political reality of water. We need to talk about how water works to make sense of what the interests are. And the simplest reality again, is that regardless of power, how much political power someone has, Water is one of the most fundamental shared interests we all have. So let's look at drought in California's water through the broadest lens of interest. First, there are simply a lot of people here in California, 12% of the US population, about 40 million people. And again, we all need water to live. A severe enough drought is actually a threat to human health and life. And this, is, uh, this of course connects to the second primary concern. California comprises 14.4% of US gross domestic product. If California were to secede as one of the state, states that contributes more to the US tax base than it extracts from it, it would be the fifth largest economy in the world with all of its industries and the productivity of its workers. Every industry is equally dependent on water because every person working anywhere growing up to eventually work anywhere, in school to be trained to work anywhere, retired from any, indus in any industry, requires water to live. So whether we're talking about the states, one of the state's largest employers, the UC system, the people working at the port that have the leave their levers on the hands of the US economy, the entertainment industry, big tech, uh, mining, whatever industry you can think of, all are equally dependent on water. So again, we wanna be clear that in the most basic empirical sense, there is no special industrial or individual claim to water, either from a concern of human rights or from an economic concern. The size of California's population and economy mean that California's water system is a national public interest and arguably a global public interest, particularly when you factor in what's already been said about food production here. But equal dependence on water doesn't equate to equal use, nor does it equate to equal interest or influence in how water is located, nor does it speak to the fact that it's not only water, but food that makes our existence possible. Now, if any of you have ever driven up and down the five freeway, freeway through the Central Valley, many farms display signs to the road that carry slogans like, food grows where water flows, or man-made drought. Without further knowledge, one might be tempted to believe that our farmers are struggling to keep the rest of us alive. Urban city dwellers, indifferent to the plight of the very people on whom they are dependent to live, drive on. But systemically, 
There is no indifference and California's agriculture is not underrepresented in California's water politics or water allocations. The biggest user of California's water by far is agriculture. And California's agriculture comprises about 80%, 80 to 90% of all human use of water in the state. That's agriculture on one hand and everything that takes place within an urban setting on the other hand. 95% of our population live in urban areas. Let me say briefly and directly that this fact also allows us from dismissing the issue as one of overpopulation, which sometimes people use as an easy sort of way to not think very much about environmental issues. That's only the case unless you assume that agricultural water use is unchangeable. Now, agricultural, agriculture also uses about 8% of the state's total energy, most of which goes to pumping water, as been mentioned. This means agriculture has an effect on fossil fuel consumption and therefore climate change, as well as fossil fuel prices. Now, again, agriculture uses a huge portion of our water. And of all the food this water produces, about half of it leaves the states exported. But California agriculture only constitutes about 2.6% of California's economy. In a particularly productive year, California agriculture employs about 800,000 people. In a year of reduced production, that figure may be as low as 600,000. Remember, California has a population of about 40 million people. So even that 800,000 is about 2% of the population of the state. One thing we should immediately recognize is that however important it is to produce food, the extent to which we use energy to procure water through drilling, pumping, massive aqueduct projects, how effectively we store water, the types of crops we grow, um, all point to inefficiency, economic, climate, and ultimately human costs of deciding to produce as much food as we do here and in the way we produce it. This is important in answering the special interest group question. Whatever causes we can point to for worsening drought, California's water system actively amplifies drought purely because we have allowed the economic arrangements of the 19th century uh, when California was more of an agricultural economy to continue into the 21st century with the needs of California's agriculture continuing to take precedence. Now, the easiest way to explain how political decisions are made in a complex system like the United States or California is through an analytical lens called pluralism. Nobody can focus on every single thing and people tend to focus on areas they feel special concern to. So decisions are made not by everyone together, but by a plurality of different interests, negotiating and focusing on some things and ignoring other things. People that share a special interest in something organize to defend those interests, forming special interest groups, while everyone else less interested and less organized exert less influence. Large-scale industrial farming is the single largest special interest directed at water allocation in California. And their basic interest is in procuring more water while avoiding spending money to change how they do business. We all may be equally dependent on water, but the rest of us do tend to take water for granted because it's still available to us while we let the agricultural lobby have the biggest say. Remember, just because agriculture uses the most water does not mean they are more dependent on water than the film industry or your neighbor who wants to open up a sneaker shop. But agriculture is organized around what the rest of us take for granted and has done so since the 1800s. 
This means a portion of the profits produced from this industry go to lobbying around water allocation, supporting politicians at every level of politics, including the federal government, who in turn appoint regulators who will make favorable decisions on behalf of California's agriculture, to even expenditures in media to influence the way we perceive water politics in California. Even our perception of farms is stuck in the 19th century by this special interest. We tend to think of the family farm with a barn and a few farm workers growing our food and producing humble earnings and an unappreciated act of nobility. It's an image from an earlier time. We tend not to think of the 21st century reality of large corporate factory farms and a massive fossil fuel pumping infrastructure using up the vast majority of available water to produce their profits, owned by investment firms or people living in Beverly Hills, in an industry that employs hundreds of thousands of workers who are overwhelmingly people of color, with these workers living at subsistence level and who must move across the state multiple times a year to avoid starving as the different crops in different areas come in. Regulatory and water agencies, while not technically a special interest, can still be treated like a special interest for our purposes. I want to echo everything that John Stead said about water agencies, but add another level to how these agencies operate. Agencies tend to balance the water needs of urban populations in a way that maintains rather than challenges the agricultural status quo. The bureaucrats of these agencies ultimately appointed by politicians make most of the decisions regarding how much water to trade or buy from out of state and where that water goes. The two most important agencies are the Westlands Water District and the Metropolitan Water District of South of California, most of which reflect the way, uh, most of have the biggest influence on the way water allocations work. From a pluralist perspective, the only check on the preferences of agriculture is the fact that if water stops flowing altogether to urban areas, there will be dire political consequences for any politicians and bureaucrats that are seen to be responsible. That means that solutions to water issues have largely focused on, again, procuring more water, uh, engaging in trades, taking more water from states, drilling deeper, and debating environmentally questionable water sources. Essentially things that avoid angering the major special interest of big agriculture on the one hand, or drawing the, urbans, the urban public's attention to the problem of water systems on the other hand. But a water system that allocates based on serving agriculture and avoiding urban crisis means that we end up changing very little about water consumption. And instead we race to the bottom of both the proverbial and literal water barrel. Ultimately, the road signs of big agriculture end up being accurate. Our drought is man-made, but in no small part because our political system prioritizes the needs of agricultural special interests and not as the signs would have us believe because we're neglecting their special interests. Other special interests are not nearly as influential, but there are some important ones that, that we can see some positive signs with. Environmental groups have played a role in limiting where water can be withdrawn. Um, however, uh, in line with a pluralist framework where agriculture's, in, agriculture's influence is primarily limited by the need for politicians to avoid short-term crisis, um, the, the regulations reflect simply avoiding short-term crisis. There are some exceptions for endangered species, but most limitations that exist on limiting water use are oriented around crisis aversion, not responsible conservation. 
So whether we're talking about figuring out the minimum levels required to keep rivers flowing and preserve the water flow in the ecosystem, or limitations on groundwater drilling, which have become necessary because some areas have reached a point where they're beginning to pump poisonous sediment, sediments out of the ground, to having to pump back water into the Owens Dry Lake because toxic sediment dust clouds from the lake bed posed a serious human health risk. Ironically, with all of these sorts of things, many of the immediate health crises are felt in the agricultural areas because this is where the impacts of toxic water dynamics take place, meaning that some of the most affected by the political failure in our water system are people of color working the farms, making this an environmental justice issue as well. But as bad as all this might seem, the influence of big agriculture is still ultimately a matter of organization. And everyone ultimately, whether we realize it or not, has exactly the same interest in water all allocation as they do, and a greater interest in organizing to create a 21st century water infrastructure. The lack of counter-organization on the part of everyone else is equally to blame for our current water situation from a political point of view. Thank you so much for those detailed responses, Professor Ball. I'm going to hand it over to Prof Dr. Shermack one last time. Sure thing. Thank you, uh, Chris, and thank you, Professor Ball. Appreciate that. At this time, uh, we are going to begin the Q&A session. Uh, if you do have questions, feel free to type them into the Q&A area. Uh, I have questions that I've been gathering throughout the session. I know we won't be able to get to all of the questions uh, within our one hour time window, uh, but let's go ahead and dive into some of the questions that um, have already been asked. And um, I want to kind of begin um, with, a, with a, a broader question that came in from uh, a participant, Chris Quinn. Uh, and I kind of want to throw this out to the entire panel because I think everyone may have some uh, insight on this. Um, Chris asked uh, for students and others who are interested, what can students do? What can, what can citizens do to solve this complex issue? Beyond education, how can we get more people involved in this massive problem? And how could we get the campus to be more water wise? So um, really, I'll, I'll throw it out to any takers here. What, what are some of the things that students can do practically uh, to help get at this complex issue? Um, I can answer that if anybody sure. else doesn't have. Um, I think being an informed voter is really important and understanding um, that the elections for the water board, right, that those things are extremely important. Um, I'm willing to join uh, my colleague Joe Stead and form a committee that is anti-turf on campus. And if we could get rid of some invasive species, the subtropical trees, I'd be happy to do that too. Um, but I think uh, advocating for more water wise, I would love to see the quad go back to coastal sage, right? And so if we could um, advocate, you know, you, you can't change everything, but you can change locally. And even just in your yard, getting rid of your lawn. And, and this is what I did. I planted Xeriscape. Um, native plants and my yard is beautiful and I never have to water it. It's fantastic. So those are the little things that you can do, but also being an informed voter, I think is really important. And anyone else want to add to that kind of the practical things students can do? Uh, John Fawcett, go ahead. Sure. A couple of, of really simple little things. Um, reusable containers. Um, instead of depending on vending machines and plastic water bottles, um, get a good sturdy reusable container 
and along with that, begin to understand a little about human physiology. Um, the reason that you drink water is you want to avoid dehydration. Your body is designed to avoid dehydration. So you don't need to have a sip of water, you know, every time you get in your car and you go to the market. Trust me, you can make an entire round trip to the market and back home where there's a wonderful water supply provided nonstop without the need to consume so much water along the way. Very good. Bring, bring it with you. Yeah, excellent. Anyone else want to add to that? Uh, Professor I, I would like to. Professor Ball, please, yes. Yeah. Um, so I really, I really definitely agree very strongly with the premise of um, think globally, act locally, which um, Irene was advocating for very well. But I also want to say that this might be an issue where we have to also go beyond that. We should do all of these things, but this crisis is extraordinarily severe. And we still do live in a, in a political society that's responsive to mass participation. So we have to also maybe start acting on a larger scale because there's very powerful interests involved. Um, the system of water rights that we have in California absolutely needs to change. And one problem if, if we only purely act locally is we are again leaving water rights issues to the people that are most immediately interested in it. And I can do, I have like a whole thing on this, but I'll try and spec to simplify it down. Right now, farms essentially have a lot of influence on just being able to take water from the system at their discretion and to leave everyone else to figure out what they're gonna do about it. Um, they compete with each other by taking water out of the system and then suing each other, which means that there's this huge incentive in our water system for farmers to just take as much out as they can before the other guy gets it, while the rest of us are holding left holding the empty barrel. And if this continues, right, we're going to see this crisis exemplified, amplified, um, getting worse and worse and worse. So I really do agree with John that we should be thinking at the SIP level, but that's for me, that's because we are at such a point in crisis that we actually should be measuring our SIPs. But even if all of us in the urban areas measured our SIPs, it would just be a drop in the bucket, right? We, we should really all think of these lo local solutions as indispensable, important stop gaps. But we need to also organize across the state with groups that are doing the work. We need to seek those out to act at a more systemic level. So much of this is controlled by hedge funds and investment banks that see regulations coming. And then paradoxically, for example, uh, in the mid 2010s, California proposed that we might regulate almonds, right? Uh, and limit almond growth. And so with that proposal, a bunch of investment banks came in, bought up a bunch of land, planted a bunch of almond trees, right? Um, in order to corner the market before supply would go down in California. And now almonds constitute 10% of the state's total water use, right? Purely with, with all of the issues that Irene mentioned, the importance of almonds and their nutritional benefits, the way that allocation worked had nothing to do with measuring this rationally. It was purely a free-for-all, 
unregulated cash grab move by investment banks. And if we allow the system to continue to work like this, we're going to be catching up, measuring our SIPs and responding to crisis, thinking about, you know, for me, I think everyone should uh, move to a natural landscape, but I live in Los Angeles. I don't have a lawn, right? So I'm going to deal with water rationing because some investment bank wanted to plant a bunch of almonds. We do need to think and act both locally, locally and globally. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, the next question I think is interesting, and I'm, I'm curious about it myself, and I think I'm, I'm going to send it to uh, Professor Stead. Uh, it's from uh, Mariel uh, Haley. I hope I'm pronouncing that name right, or Haley. And she asked, does uh, OCC use pesticides? She discussed some, seeing some of the rat poison traps around campus. Um, what pesticides are used at OCC? Do they use pesticides? Um, Professor Stead, I think you're muted. On campus, uh, they do use certain pesticides for spraying of weeds, for uh, rodent control, and, um, and that's, that's done through maintenance and operations. Our department, um, even though I do have my pesticide applicator's license, over the last so many years, we try not to spray anything at all in our department. And um, so that's... For, for us in horticulture, it's mostly, um, we don't use any Roundup, we don't use any, any weed abatement chemicals that are in our department. It's, 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 a lot, um, it's a lot more labor intensive, but if you use mulches to keep the grasses for the weeds from coming up, that helps hold the water, uh, retain water in the soil and uh, keeps the weeds down. So, but the, they do, I know they do bait out for, uh, for rodent control. Very good. Helps. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, next question. This will be our last question uh, of the Q&A as we're, we're trying to be mindful of everyone's time today. Uh, I'm going to send this to uh, John Fawcett. This comes from uh, OCC's uh, Alpha Beta Gamma chapter um, asking about uh, Orange County's reuse of wastewater as a means of water conservation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, sure. And I'll try to keep this quick so we can finish on time. Um, first concept, um, underground aquifers are by far the best place to maintain a water supply. Um, you don't have to worry about evaporation. Uh, it stays right where it is. Uh, it's pretty readily accessible. And um, generally speaking, um, the water flowing through the aquifer acts as a filter and produces very high quality, very pure water. So how do you get water into the aquifers? Well, the natural process, you know, in a uh, river, in a, you know, uh, basin is that water infiltrates into the soil. And if you're lucky and you have the right geological uh, conditions, you know, it will accumulate uh, in an aquifer and you can access it and pump it out of the ground for water supply. Um, you don't want to do that too much because you can actually deplete the entire aquifer and cause it to collapse and no more aquifer. But um, Orange County, through some very wise water management, has produced a system that works incredibly well. The uh, first step is that you recapture water from 
you know, a couple of pretty reliable sources. The uh, sewer system, we talked earlier about uh, toilet tap, but what goes through the sewer system is predominantly water. There's other materials that can be easily removed and filtered out. And then through a system of reverse osmosis and ultraviolet uh, purification, you end up with uh, a very, very pure water supply. Um, but you don't stop there. What Orange County does at the uh, Fountain Valley plant is they produce that high quality water. They pump it uphill to the north part of Anaheim and they put it in infiltration ponds where the water settles into the aquifer. Um, this is a little bit you know, uphill from our coastal cities where the water is desired. So by putting it in the aquifer, the natural flow brings that water closer to the coast, to our municipal wells. We pump it out of the wells and we get incredibly pure water supply, um, which is very sustainable. Um, during the drought, we're very likely to be, depend on that water source. And at the present time, um, the aquifer is, is pretty much full, even a little bit over full in terms of how they measure the contents and uh, hopefully will sustain us very nicely through the drought. Excellent. Thank you for that answer. And thank you uh, to everyone for your uh, answers uh, during the Q&A. Um, quite obviously, this is a, a major, important and complex issue. And certainly this can continue for much longer, but we do want to be respectful of everyone's time today. Uh, and bring the uh, session to a close at this point. Uh, we want to thank everyone who participate, uh, participated today, including our Coast Report journalists, uh, Timothy Hessen, uh, 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 Chris uh, Babona, uh, and Tasman McGill. We also want to thank our panelists, um, Irene Nessa, John Fawcett, Joe Stead, and Jason Ball, uh, as well as everyone out there in the audience who has joined us. Uh, I encourage you to please visit coastreportonline.com. That's uh, your home for uh, Coast Report student newspaper, the Coast, uh, Coast Report. Uh, follow us on our social media channels at Coast Report for continuing coverage of this topic as well as today's event. Today's town hall will be available on Coast Report's YouTube channel and as a podcast on our Spotify channel uh, later today or early tomorrow. Uh, I will now turn it back over to Professor uh, Nessa for some additional thank yous and some closing remarks. Two years on Zoom and we still forget the mute, right? <laughs> so thank you, Jeremy. Um, it was really a pleasure to participate. And I don't know about you, but I've learned so much about um, issues related to the drought. Um, so we also have some people to thank, such as um, our OCC, um, See OCC Green Coast Coordinator, John Fawcett, thank you so much. Our web streaming specialist, Eric Wilson, thank you. Um, our OCC journalism professor and Coast Report publisher, Jeremy Shermack, thank you. Our Garrison Honors Center Dean, um, Dean John Taylor, thank you so much. Um, and again, all of the panelists, um, Jason Ball, Joe Stebb, and John Fawcett, thank you so much, as well as our Coast reporters, um, Chris Bibona, um, Timothy Hessen, Marissa Lavarazzi, and Tasman McGill. Thank you so much. 
And last but not least, I think one of the hardest working people on campus, uh, Professor Lee Gordon from the Garrison Honor Center. Thank you everybody for putting this together and thank you everyone for attending and have a wonderful day. Thank you.